0: So, a few years ago, a grocery store in Canada tried to shame customers into bringing their own reusable grocery bags for shopping, okay? So here's what they did. In addition to charging five cents per plastic bag, they had their store bags printed, with these cringe-worthy messages uh, in 1970s font. Here's what the bags looked like. Yeah, yeah. So you can imagine, one bag read, one bag read uh, Dr. Toes, Wart Ointment Wholesale. Uh, the middle one was the Colon Care Co-op. Uh, and, and the far left, Into the Weird Adult Video Emporium. These were all just made up names of stores that were intended to shame customers for using plastic bags and because they wanted them to bring a reusable bag. And then at the bottom, at the bottom of the bags uh, were in small print, avoid the shame, bring a reusable bag. So it was kind of a shaming tactic, all right? So, um, unfortunately, the store apparently underestimated their customers' sensitivity to shame because the customers actually loved the bags. (laughs) They thought they were hilarious. No kidding. One customer said, I would 100% not use reusable bags just to see which awesome bag I would get next. And then another customer said, now that the entire region knows that they are purposefully embarrassing, I'm even more inclined to get one, right? I might even buy extra bags to give to people, right? And so they quickly shut down that tactic. It just didn't work. It didn't work. You know, shame doesn't always have that effect on people, right? Right? It typically doesn't embolden people. It usually does the opposite. Shame usually causes people to hide. Right? I mean, the experience of shame, just think about it. The experience of shame uh, leads to body language, such as a turning away, or a downward face, or the lowering of the eyes. Right? What what is that? It's about hiding. Shame causes us to cloak ourselves with invisibility to prevent further shame. See. Oh, and by the way, so shame and guilt are distinct. I mean, they're siblings, but there is a difference. There's a difference. Uh, So so guilt is more clear-cut. Guilt says that there's a standard to meet, and you either meet it or you don't. Okay. Shame is shiftier. Shame has to do with uh, how I am seen in public. When I feel shame before the eyes of others, I, I want to conceal myself from crippling public exposure. As one counselor put it, uh, people who feel guilty can feel shame, but people who feel shame aren't always guilty, right? Does anybody here struggle with shame? Hmm. What is this thing called shame? What is this, anyway? Well, let's define the term here. Uh, Ed Welch from the Christian Counseling Education Foundation wrote a book called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. And his definition of shame really resonated with me. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did Something done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Uh, Here is even stronger language. Shame is when you are disgraced because either you acted less than human or you were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. So shame has this unmistakably accusing, condemning voice. Shame's voice argues and contends and accuses. Shame's voice says, you're not enough. What's wrong with you? You're a failure. No one could love you. No one could love you. You're too dirty. You're too messed up. You'll never amount to anything. You, des- you deserve to be treated poorly. Shame. You, you're a disappointment to everyone. Shame. Now, sh- shame speaks to an identity. Sh- shame wants to define your identity. So it's, shame is, is more than just saying, I feel bad. No shame argues. No, I am bad. I am a disappointment. I am worthless. So it argues. It's prosecutorial. And as I said before, shame insists that shame insists that I get. I deserve what I get. I, I, I deserve what I get. Shame says I, I deserve to be beaten and abused. And I deserve to be a victim of racism. And. I deserve to be left out. I deserve to be alone and depressed. See? I des- I deserve the hurt I get. That, that's what shame shame does. Yeah. Hmm. Again, I ask, anybody here struggle with shame? Debilitating shame. Um, if you if you are feeling unlovable chances are you're struggling with shame Hmm. now in our series the gospel according to Satan we've been considering Satan's lies We, we want we're wanting to expose his lies and so our first week of the series we talked about the lie that he doesn't exist. That's a lie Satan wants to convey to us that he doesn't exist. Week two, we considered the lie, you can be like God. It's the oldest lie in the Bible. You can be like God. Last week, Justin just did um, a great job exposing the lie of following your heart, right? Following, (laughs) don't follow your heart Lead your heart to Jesus and follow Jesus. Okay. so This week's lie is Satan's lie of shame. Your sin will never be cleansed. I want to just expose and deconstruct that satanic lie. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah. If you have your church Bibles with you, that's on page 794. And Zechariah chapter 3 is a chapter that talks about how God deals with our shame. Church family, there are passages of Scripture that are. Um, man you just need to read over and over and over again because I mean this is our life right here this is this is my life this describes the story of my life Zechariah chapter 3 and part of what makes this so powerful is um, that it's such an unfamiliar passage of scripture how many of you have read Zechariah chapter 3 in the past month? That's what I mean. So you're going to, you're going to, you are going to see a powerful passage of scripture. It's about how God removes shame and, and the removal of that shame leads to, um, leads to an oasis of community and love and fellowship with Him. Do you want that? All right. Zechariah chapter 3. Then He, that is Yahweh, the Lord God, then He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a, a brand or, a, or a, a, a burning stick plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with with seven or sevenfold eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there is a lot of symbolic language in these verses, clearly. And so we need to unpack that. We need to... uh, we we need to discover, we need to learn, and try to find what reality is being talked about that these symbols represent. And so that's what I want us to do this morning here, as we consider Zechariah chapter three and and how God deals with our shame. So first of all, who is Zechariah? Who is Zechariah? Zechariah is a prophet. He lived in Jerusalem after God's people had returned from Babylonian captivity. So if you can imagine an entire population, a, a nation, and particularly the, the leadership uh, group of the nation, being snatched from their homeland and brought to the capital of another empire. And that's what happened to Israel when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. This is, this is, his, this is history. This is, there's historical evidence that this has occurred, that this occurred um, uh, almost 600 years before the birth of Christ. And so Israel was in captivity 70 years, and then they were allowed to return when another regime took over, the Persian Empire. So the Babylonians swallowed up Israel, then 70 years later, Persia swallowed up Babylon and Persia's policy was different from Babylon. They let the they let the people go back to their homeland. And and this had been predicted in in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. And then and, and so they they returned in the hope of rebuilding they wanted to rebuild their country and rebuild their culture and rebuild their worship and rebuild the temple uh, but the rebuilding was taking a lot longer than they thought and people were getting discouraged has God abandoned us why are we worshiping why are we gathering here what's the point of it all why we re- re- rebuild the temple God could never love us anymore God could never forgive us anymore we're beyond repair Well, Zechariah was a prophet, and Zechariah is a book that records a series of visions that he experienced from the Lord. And and they're rather exotic visions. If you thumb through the first several chapters of Zechariah, you'll see visions of colorful horses and flying scrolls. And there's a golden lampstand with two olive trees. That's highly symbolic language here. But the the language is meant to encourage and and to keep Israel going. Don't give in to discouragement. Keep on. Keep worshiping. Keep coming back. Keep praying. Keep gathering. Keep singing. Keep living. Keep keep on. Keep on. Keep on. And so chapter 3 is a chapter that encourages God's people, don't be captured by shame. And I want us to just walk through these verses here. And here's the trajectory of chapter 3. I'll get to a big idea here in a few moments. But we're going to talk about filthy, shameful clothes in verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to talk about clean clothes in verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to talk about Christ's clothes (laughs) in 6 through 10. That's where we're going. Filthy clothes, clean clothes, Christ's clothes. And so you should already know what I'm going to say about how God removes shame by this outline. All right. But let's go through it anyway because it's good we just need to keep preaching ourselves these truths filthy clothes starting in verse one so Zechariah had a vision of a, a high priest his name was joshua now this jo- joshua he was a real person you read about joshua in chapter three you read about joshua the high priest this is not joshua and, and jericho that's not that joshua this is another joshua this is Joshua, whose grandfather was the last high priest before the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. So here, the grandson, Joshua, has returned to restore temple worship, and, and, and so they're trying to reconstitute the people, and they're trying to rebuild the temple, and they're trying to get... The people's focus upon God. But look in this vision. Look at what's going on in this vision here. Joshua has, has showed up here in this vision. But look who else is there. Verse 1. See? Satan. Satan. Standing at Joshua's right. Standing at Joshua's right. Why is Satan there? Well, remember, he's an accuser. His name means accuser, adversary. So Satan stands to the right of Joshua as an opponent who is accusing and indicting and reminding Joshua of his past. Now remember, remember this is a vision, and so something stands for something else. Who does Joshua stand for? Well, he's the high priest, so he stands for the nation as a whole. You see that? I want you to see that. So Satan is not only in accusing Joshua the high priest of Israel Satan is accusing Israel. Of what? Well remember Israel had returned from Babylon. They're trying to regather. And verse 2 says that Joshua and thus the nation is like a charred stick that's been pulled from a fire. This is the Babylonian captivity. And what it means is if God had not plucked Israel out of Babylonian exile, then like a flaming piece of wood, Israel would have just disintegrated and turned to ashes. So here is Joshua. Remember, representing Israel. Joshua is in, covered in soot. He, the scripture says he's filthy. You see the word filthy there? It shows up, it shows up in verse 4. He's filthy, filthy. That word filthy, it's, it's a strong term. I'll just put it this way. It means human emissions. And Satan stands and accuses Joshua. What did you think would happen? You brought Babylon on yourself. You chose to listen to your heart. And now you're dirty and you're filthy and you stink and you're beyond repair. Did you think 70 years in Babylon is going to clean you up? You're a mess. You're a hopeless, irreparable mess. You see what's going on here in these verses? You see, what the, you see what Satan is doing here? Satan is using shame as an emotional weapon to corrupt our relationships with one another and with God. So Satan weaponizes shame. To destroy any sense of community. Because when you're hiding and you want to be all by yourself and you're secluded, see, how can you have community there? You see? That's what Satan is doing with, with, with shame. Shame is not, listen, shame is more than just, just this feeling of you know um, nakedness before someone else's. Condemnation is way more than that. Satan uses it as a weapon to, to cause community to disintegrate. Yeah. And, and, and when you're dominated by shame, you, you can't promote goodness and joy and beauty and flourishing as an image bearer of God. Can't. Someone dominated by shame, you know, you, 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 you can't fulfill their function as a first-grade teacher. They can't love their spouse the way they've been designed to. They can't practice medicine the way they've designed to. They can't write music or enjoy sports the, because the voice of shame keeps shutting, wanting to shut you down. You see? That's how powerful shame is. And I'm just wondering how many of us have been listening to that voice. Some of us are listening to that voice right now. We heard it when we woke up. What makes you think that going to church is going to help? What makes you think that's going to help? What makes you think you can change your life? Why would God ever love you? See, that, that's a voice we hear all too often. Let me ask you something. Do you really believe that those words come from the voice of God? If if Satan's name means accuser, isn't it more likely that an accusing voice comes not from God, but from Satan? See? And here's the problem. We often try to challenge the factual accuracy of Satan's accusations in other words we want to debate him the accuser would have us think that escape comes by out debating his accusations but I'm here to tell you (laughs) on the Word of God and by personal experience that's a losing battle okay and here's why the fact is we do fail we're sinners Like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, we do what we don't want to do, and the good we know we ought to do, we don't. So to overcome Satan's shaming, we don't need better arguments. We need a better advocate. And that takes me to verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Now, by the way, that's Hebrew for, shut up, devil! <laughs> so it takes the voice of the Lord. The, the total story of our lives starts and ends with the voice of God. Satan's is an intruder, remember? From Genesis chapter 3, he's an intruder. So his voice is an intrusion. God's voice is the start and the end. God's voice, the voice that creates. God's voice creates life. God's voice creates community. And God's voice is ultimate. Not Satan's, not even yours. God's. His word assigns value and purpose and identity to our lives. And that's why verse 2 says, I chose Israel. You see that? I chose Israel. The Lord has chosen Israel. Rebuke you. God did that. Persia didn't rescue Israel. God did. And just as God used Babylon as his tool to discipline Israel for idolatry, God used Persia to defeat Israel babylon in order to return israel because of god's covenant word his covenant so we worship the god who speaks covenant words we worship the god what does that mean that means he's not going to abandon you we worship the god who has the right to speak and the right to be heard we worship the god whose word will not leave us in the filth of our shame. We worship the God who keeps calling out to us. His is the voice of love and grace and hope and healing and cleansing. Did did you notice something here in verses 1 and 2? God will not even allow Satan to speak. Do you see that? Satan doesn't even utter a word. God shut Satan up before he could even open his mouth. Question, if God refuses to entertain Satan's accusation regarding your sin, why would you entertain Satan's accusation regarding your sin? (laughs) Satan would leave us in the fire and let us burn to ashes, but God won't do that. And so the rebuking of Satan in verses 1 to 3 sets up a rescue and reclothing in verses 4 and 5. We go, from, we go from filthy clothes to clean clothes. Verse 4, remove the filthy garments from him. Imagine the foulest, filthiest clothes you've ever worn. How'd those clothes get that way? Well, for Israel, it was Babylon. For some of us, it's been, it's been filth pasted, on us by others and truth be told in some instances we did it to ourselves and then when we try to get it off we just spread it around it gets worse oh and then what happens we compare ourselves with others <laughs> we compare our stink with another's stink Right? You know, I may stink, but not, not as bad as you. Isn't that silly? That, that, that Satan, would have, Satan would have, would leave us that way. God won't. Verse 4, remove the filthy garments. So, so some clothes just can't be washed clean. They've got to be stripped away. And the cleansing begins with the stripping away. Now remember, remember, Joshua represents Israel. So the God who cleanses Joshua is the God who cleanses Israel. So God plucks us out of the fire. We don't get out on our own. And then God strips the filthy clothes off us. We can't clean ourselves. So then God, having taken the filth off, then he puts on, he takes the filth off, he strips us, and then he puts on fresh, new, fine garments. These aren't just, these aren't just Sunday Easter clothes. They're their, their vestments of the priesthood, including a new turban. All of us. All of us. Remember, Joshua stands for Israel. So, so, so Joshua is outfitted from head to toe. You see what's going on here? He, he is being fully dressed to do the work that God has called him to do. What is that? To be a priest. To be a go-between, between God and the world. That, that was the purpose of Israel. That's what God wanted. So, so you see, the point of Christianity is not just so that I can have my sins forgiven and my conscience cleansed. Oh, that's wonderful. But it's so that, so that with such cleansing, I can fulfill the priestly work that God has for me, for us. This was Israel's original charter. Uh, Exodus 19:6 Exodus 19:6 Israel will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So so when people see a priest they're they're to think of God. And so when people s- think of God they see you. And it's not because we made ourselves holy. It's because God cleansed us and outfitted us for his purposes. Joshua's purpose was to represent the Lord God before Israel, and Israel's purpose was was to represent God before the world. Isn't it true that clothing has a way of affecting how we think and speak and act, isn't it? Clothing has that ability, and, and so just as Joshua has this fresh look about him, so, we are empowered to think differently and speak differently and redemptively about ourselves because of how God has outfitted us. We're clean because of God. And so, then the rest of our lives is about living in a way that reflects our dress. See? Fine priestly vestments, tailor made by God Himself. They're for us, church, for us. And we wear them not merely to cover our shame, but to mediate and display His holiness. It's your breath in our lungs. See, We're dressed as priests to act like priests. And that's the meaning of verses 6 and 7. So, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, you see. you In other words, you are dressed... It's the kind of condi- conditional sentence that, that assumes that, no, this is, the, this is your reality now. You are dressed to walk in my ways. You are dressed which equips you to live the life I want you to live because I'm supplying the strength and energy to do that. So, so Satan's lie is that we need to clean ourselves up before God will dress us. The true gospel says that when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. The true gospel says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The true gospel says that while we were filthy, God cleansed us. While we were naked, God clothed us. Not not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. God rescues us, dresses us, and then teaches us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live like clean people. Amen. Amen. And it's all because we're wearing Christ's clothes. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Christ's clothes. And, and so what does it look like? You say, what does it look like? You're using a lot of symboli- symbolic language, Pastor. What, 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 what does it look like when we wear Christ's clothes? Let's just jump to verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Wow. See? This is the vision of our church. That God transforms us so that we can be a source of refreshment to a weary world. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. See, we've not had much rain of late, have we? Uh, But you go to Israel and... uh, I mean, you're not going to find rain from May to October. That's just the way it is. Blazing sun, heat, but here's, there's this vine and this fig tree. See, it's the image of shade and refuge and healing and hospitality and sustenance for others. So, so God doesn't just forgive us and take away our shame so that we can wake up in the morning and, and feel clean. Of course, that's, that's a wonderful gift. He wants to rid us of shame so that we can be an instrument of hope to others. So, so here's the question prompted by verse 10. If you were not incapacitated by shame, what would you be able to do that you can't do right now? What, what would love look like to those around you think about that think about what it would be like to be a refuge in your neighborhood that in their time of need your neighbor comes to you your co-worker comes to you your boss comes to you and you have something to offer you have shade you have sweet delicious figs oh you have relief you're you you say to your neighbor you're not an interruption you're not you know what uh, God, you matter to God. You matter to God. I, I'm not afraid to connect with you. I'm not afraid to connect with you. How, how are you. how is this possible? Because God has changed your clothing. You didn't tailor it yourself. It was made for you by God. Verse 10 is our destiny. And this is what, this is what we're called to live in right now. Right now, I, I don't have to convince anybody that the next 18 months, our nation, as a nation, is about to experience another exhausting political season. So, so, so how are you going to dress? And I'm going to preach at us now. Are we going to dress as a partisan American? Or are we going to dress according to Christ's priesthood? What clothes are you going to put on? Because your clothes are going to affect how you speak, how you think, and how you act. See? Verse 10 is our destiny. What would, it look, what would it look like in the midst of exhaustion and bitterness well, that our world interacts with, with a community, I'm talking about us here, that provides shade and sustenance? And, you know, the, the, and the world looks at us and says, these people aren't rattled. These people aren't undone. These people have a peace that passes understanding. I want that. And we have, we can share it because there's plenty of grace to go around. And and that's where we get to Jesus here in verse 8. Because he makes this possible. Here's a prophecy concerning Jesus in verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The branch. Uh, uh, The branch was a, 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 a a symbol of a scepter, the king's scepter, a branch, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That sounds a lot like the cross to me. So this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And so the words servant and branch and stone, all of these point to the identity of the one true king, the Messiah. The branch is this symbol of David's royal line. And the stone, you see the word stone there in verses 8, 9, and 10. The stone is, is uh, likely a, a reference to the temple. So you have this image of, uh, of kingship and this image of priesthood. They come together in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is both king and priest. And Joshua's own name points to the coming of Christ. Joshua is Hebrew, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. The Lord saves. The sin of the land is purged in a single day. Israel's cleansing would be done in one day by Jesus on the cross. And not just Israel, the world. So how do you silence shame? By believing Christ who strips us of our shame and clothes us with his robe of righteousness. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Zechariah wrote these words with the future in mind. But we read these words on the other side of the cross. The cross was the worst and darkest of days. Hallelujah. The unjust murder of God's servant's son but God made it the best of all days for those who trust in Him. For on that cross, Christ took away our sins. He scorned the shame. No more shame. And as a result of His ongoing rule, our church, the new Israel, is symbolized by neighbors sitting at peace beneath the vine and the fig tree. And and there is a global effect to this. Glance back up in your Bibles to, to Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. Zechariah 2:11 says, "And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people." God's people is a multinational, multi-ethnic gathering of redeemed who, who by the grace of Christ, wear His vestments, man." That's why. Zechariah 3 is a chapter we just need to keep reading over and over and over again because Satan is a stubborn devil. Ah, but the truth of God remains. The truth of God remains. He's rescued us from the fire. He's robed us in the finest clothing. Your filthy rags are gone. The shame is gone. Faith is living like you wear Jesus yeah yeah I think I'll just stop right there faith is living like you wear Jesus